Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the 10th and final episode of season 10. Don't these seasons come and go so quickly? Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like both. Did you know the voice actors for Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse actually got married in real life. Wayne Allwine was the third person to ever voice Mickey Mouse, and whilst working at the recording studio, he met and fell in love with his future wife, Russie Taylor, who just so happened to voice Minnie. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. Writing is like getting married. One should never commit oneself until one is amazed at one's luck. That was said by novelist and philosopher Iris Murdoch. This case was suggested by two listeners. Judy O'Connell requested it via messenger, whilst Peter Gallagher used the contact form on BritishMurders.com to do so. We're back, once again, in the Bedfordshire town of Luton this week, a place we visited twice before on British Murders. I provided some quick-fire facts about Luton in Season 3, Episode 10, when I covered the story of Sabah and Saima Khan, and I also delved into the town's violent gang history in Season 9, Episode 9, when I covered the murder of Jordan Maguire. I encourage you to go back and listen to both episodes if you want to learn more about this week's location. Before we delve into the story, let me set the stage for you and take you back to the year 1985. Whilst researching the era of this case, as I do with each of my stories, I was shocked to discover how many tragedies occurred during that year. Queen Elizabeth II was celebrating her 33rd year as the UK's monarch, whilst the most divisive political leader of modern times, Margaret Thatcher, was two years into her second term as the UK's Prime Minister after the Conservative Party's landslide victory in the 1983 general election. I've picked out six historically significant disasters to briefly touch upon, which, again, all occurred in 1985. 
Firstly, on January 10th, eight people were killed in a gas explosion at a tower block in Putney, South London, after several residents reported smelling gas in their flats that morning. The explosion was compared to a 50-pound World War II-era general-purpose air bomb going off and caused an estimated £250 million worth of damage. That equates to roughly £733.5 million as of July 2023. Next, with the Troubles conflict in Northern Ireland in full swing, nine Royal Ulster Constabulary officers were killed on February 28th after a heavy mortar attack was launched on the RUC base at Corrie Square in Newry by the Provisional Irish Republican Army, the IRA. It was the third deadly mortar attack of the Troubles and the worst tragedy as far as death toll goes suffered by the RUC. On May 11th, Bradford City's football stadium, Valley Parade, burst into flames after someone is thought to have dropped a cigarette. The main stand burned down, killing 56 spectators and injuring in excess of 250 others. The day had started off so well, with Bradford being presented the Division 3 Championship Trophy, their first in over half a century, before their game that day against Lincoln City kicked off. The White House farm murders, which saw Neville Bamber, June Bamber, Sheila Caffell, Daniel Caffell and Nicholas Caffell all murdered by Neville and June's adopted son Jeremy Bamber, occurred on August 7th. Bamber went on to receive a whole life order for the murders and is currently locked up at HMP Wakefield. Just over two weeks after that, the Manchester airport disaster occurred when British Air Tours flight KT28M burst into flames whilst taking off. A total of 55 people, 53 passengers and two crew members, died as the Boeing 737-236 set off for the Greek island of Corfu. A combustor can on the port engine ruptured, so a section of the can was ejected forcibly into an underwing fuel tank access panel. I've no idea what that means, I just got that off a blog about the disaster. And finally, on October 21st, a coach on the M6 collided with stationary traffic, killing 13 people. The traffic had been brought to a standstill due to construction work taking place on the motorway. With some historical context set for you, let me now introduce Avril Dunn, near Williams. Born on March 11th, 1959 in Scotland, I believe her family hailed from Glasgow, Avril Williams was one of at least two children to her parents. The family moved to Luton when Avril was 11, so we're talking around 1970, and it was there where they settled. Family tree information is limited regarding Avril, so I'm going out on a logical limb by stating that her maiden name was Williams, but she did go on to marry a man called Paul Dunn in 1980, which ties things up nicely. Paul was a postman, and for reasons not known, the marriage was destined to fail. Just three years after exchanging their vows, the newly married couple went their separate ways. It doesn't appear as though they officially divorced, although I could be wrong, but regardless, the pair were no longer an item and did not live together after they were separated. During those three years of marriage, Avril was struggling massively with the eating disorder and mental health condition anorexia nervosa. It'd be pure speculation to suggest that the unhappy marriage was the cause of Avril's condition, but it may well have contributed. The NHS website describes people with anorexia as having a distorted images of their bodies. They think they're overweight, even morbidly obese, when in reality they are often dangerously underweight. UK charity Beat, formerly Eating Disorders Association, 
whose information I've included in this episode's description, by the way, estimates that around 1.25 million people in the UK have an eating disorder, with 10% of them suffering from anorexia. Around 75% of those with an eating disorder identify as female. Did you know that eating disorders have the highest mortality rates among psychiatric disorders? If anyone listening is suffering from an eating disorder or is concerned that someone you know is, please reach out to Beat for some help and or guidance. Like I said, I've referenced them in my description. Avril Dunn was hospitalised in 1982 as a result of her physical condition deteriorating and during the main timeline of this story, September 1985, she weighed just five and a half stone. That's 77 pounds or just under 35 kilograms depending on which unit you prefer. She was just 4 foot 10 inches in height too, so you can begin to understand how physically vulnerable she was. Residing with her cousin David in a house at Gooseberry Hill, Avril lived a stone's throw away from the infamous Marsh Farm housing estate area of Luton. If Marsh Farm sounds familiar, it's because I covered another murder case based in that area in Season 9, Episode 9. The murder of Jordan Maguire, which I mentioned at the very start of this episode, occurred there, and in that episode I went deep into the town's historical gang violence, especially that between the Marsh Farm and Lucy Farm gangs. Lucy Farm gets another mention later in this episode, so I definitely recommend going back and checking out that episode in particular for some more context about this area. At some point in 1985, I can't confirm when, but I know it wasn't too long before this story's events that September, Avril went on holiday with her mum and dad. Their destination of choice was the USA. Avril's sister lived over there, so they took a family trip to visit and spend some time with her. Even at 26 years old, Avril struggled to maintain close relationships with people, even if it was just as friends. Based on my research, she appeared to desperately want companionship with anyone she could and would even resort to making excuses to go and visit people at home so she could have some sort of social interaction with them. One example of that is the family she regularly visited at Five Springs Tower Block, just off Wowloods Bank Drive. Definitely saying that wrong. W-A-U-L-U-D-S. I'm going with Wowloods. She'd pop round for many random reasons, including to borrow some videotapes, which the family knew was just nonsense, just so she could have an interaction, regardless of how brief. Avril also frequented a local pub called The Heron, located on the corner of Watermead Road and Bramingham Road. It no longer exists, if you're interested. The building is now Mulberry Court Care Home. At the pub, Avril would ingratiate herself with the locals by playing darts with them, although she struggled to open up and remained closed off when it came to discussing her personal life. The patrons of the Heron would say that Avril was a lovely woman, if not a bit quiet, but whenever pushed she would insist on not divulging anything about herself. It seems like a case of they knew her, but they didn't know her, if you get what I mean. On the evening of September 14th, Avril headed to the Heron as she did every weekend, giving the briefest of goodbyes to David as she walked out of the front door. Her commute took her past an area known as Spinney Wood, a long yet narrow wooded area that separates Henge Way and Spinney Road. There's a cut through about halfway down the two roads which the locals refer to as the Spinney, but as it was a notorious spot for women to be assaulted by men, Avril decided to avoid it regardless of how much longer it made her journey. There were two recent attacks that took place in that cut-through in the weeks leading up to September 14th. 
On one occasion, a 14-year-old girl was suddenly attacked by a man as she made her way through the spinney. He had tried to grab her, but thankfully she escaped after hitting her attacker and running off. The other incident saw a 16-year-old girl being attacked, again by an adult male, near one of the many blocks of flats close to Spinney Wood. If you look on Google Maps or whatever map system you use, it's amazing how narrow that wooded area is, because the two long roads are so close to each other, but because it's a copse made up of a dense group of tall trees, there's plenty of cover, plenty of places to hide. After safely navigating her way around Spinney Wood, Avril soon arrived at Five Springs Tower Block at 8pm to stop and speak briefly with the aforementioned family she regularly saw. She continued her journey to the pub after that, arriving at around 8.30pm. Heading straight to the bar and getting herself a drink, Avril hovered around the pool table on her own before soon heading for the toilets. Another female patron of the pub recalled seeing Avril in the loo and noted how upset she seemed. Assuming the tears to have been caused by a man, the witness offered Avril a tissue and headed back into the pub. Avril followed soon after and before long was taking part in a darts game with some of the locals whom she considered to be her friends. Des King, the pub goer who kept score for Avril's darts match, touched upon how nobody was really her friend because she offered such little information about herself in return. It was hard to form any sort of relationship with her as a result. The lads at the pub did their best to make her feel welcome and treated her as one of their own, but that's about as deep as it went. The pub landlord, Des Perry, knew Avril fairly well as she was one of his regulars and her routine was typically followed religiously. She'd arrive in the pub each Saturday at the same time, between 8 and 9pm, and would leave a couple of hours later with a few of the other local men whom she'd spent the night playing darts with. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. On the night of September 14th, Avril went against expectations by leaving the pub at half ten, with some witnesses claiming that she was in the company of a tall, fair-haired man who was clean-shaven. If the woman was indeed Avril, then she was seen walking towards a light-coloured Opal Manta sports coupe with a spoiler. Another couple, who were sat outside the pub at the time Avril is thought to have left, may have also seen something that could have helped detectives solve the case, but they could not be identified, and as far as I'm aware, never came forward. A short while later, roughly half a mile away from the pub, another witness spotted a light-coloured car matching the Opal Manta's description, performing what was described as a questionable U-turn in the road. The driver, a man estimated to be in his 20s, seemed rather agitated and in a hurry to get away from where he was there would be no further sightings of Avril that evening. The next day at 7.30am, a dog walker stumbled across the badly beaten body of a woman later identified as Avril Dunn. She had been dumped in the very wood that she avoided walking through the previous evening. The injuries Avril suffered were horrendous. Given her size, it would have been a straightforward task for her attacker to overpower her. She had bruises all over her head, neck and chest, some of which were so severe that detectives came to the conclusion that she had been violently stamped on. There were signs of compression on her neck, which indicated that she had been asphyxiated, most likely with bare hands, although it couldn't be confirmed as to whether that led to her death or just knocked her unconscious. The official cause of death, as confirmed by Avril's post-mortem, was internal injuries suffered during the assault. 
Furthermore, it was revealed that her liver and mouth displayed injuries consistent with being inflicted post-mortem. Detectives had little evidence to go on other than the fact that the clothes Avril was wearing appeared to be covered in a kind of black, sticky, grease-like substance thought to be bitumen. Bitumen is a dense, highly viscous, petroleum-based hydrocarbon that's frequently used on footpaths, car underseal and roofing felt. Avril's skirt was on back to front, indicating potential sexual assault. However, detectives at the time said they were unable to confirm whether or not she had been sexually assaulted. Having said that, when the rest of Avril's clothes, her jacket, shorts, underwear and glasses, were found in a nearby dustbin behind a tower block three days later, it wasn't just the bitumen stains that were recovered. Blood and semen samples were also taken from the clothing, but we must remember that in 1985, DNA testing was far more archaic than it is now. The DNA database didn't come until 10 years after Avril was murdered, so it makes sense as to why they couldn't do much with the recovered samples. Also recovered from the bin were the contents of Avril's handbag, but the key evidence was on her clothing. A search of the surrounding areas led to detectives finding traces of the same type of bitumen found on Avril's clothes inside a shed in the nearby village of Sundon. They also found a bone-handled knife in the shed, the edge of which matched some marks on Avril's t-shirt. We can therefore assume that Avril was both threatened and partially attacked with a knife, but the majority of her injuries came from either a blunt object or a killer's bare hands and feet. A week or so after Avril's body was recovered, her dad Tommy offered a 5k reward for information that would lead to the capture of her killer. 5k back then would be just over 14 and a half grand with inflation as of July 2023. Sadly, the reward offer, substantial as it was, led to nothing. The next step in attempting to solve the case came when Crime Watch UK shared a reenactment of Avril's last known movements on its March 1986 episode. Again, appeals led to nothing. Detectives even appealed to the couple sitting outside the pub on the night of the murder to come forward, but as I mentioned earlier, they never did. I'll refer back to that Crime Watch episode in just a moment. I've got something to reveal about it that you won't believe. With nowhere else to turn, detectives were left with the frustrating decision to move on from the case, although they all remained hopeful that one day Avril's killer would be brought to justice. Their optimism paid off, as 13 years later to the day when Avril's body were found, a 35-year-old man was arrested in connection with her murder. The case incident room had been reopened earlier in 1998 due to advances in DNA technology, leading scientists to extract a DNA profile from Avril's semen-stained clothes. The original key suspects were looked at again before the 35-year-old, soon revealed to be a man called Duncan Jackson, was arrested on September 15th. The father of four would have been 22 at the time of Avril's murder, and he was, like her, a regular at the Heron pub. He knew Avril too. The pair even played darts together regularly. At the time of his arrest, Jackson was living at Runham Close in the Lucy Farm area of Luton, but back in September 1985, he was living at Arrow Close, half a mile away from the Heron and a third of a mile away from Spinney Wood. Further evidence linking Jackson to the murder was that he earned a living as a roofer at the time. Remember when I said bitumen is frequently used in roofing felt? That's a big link given the bitumen stains found on Avril's clothes. 
The biggest and most clear-cut evidence, though, was the fact that there was a one-in-a-billion chance of the DNA recovered from the semen stains on Avril's clothes not being Jackson's. He had evaded capture for 13 years, but the investigating officers finally had their man. The unbelievable fact I have regarding the episode of Crime Watch in which Avril's case was reenacted is that Jackson took part in it. At around 22 minutes into the episode, he can be seen chatting with the actress playing Avril's part before ordering a Malibu and Coke from the bar. It baffles me that he had the gall to take part in that knowing that he was responsible and knew what had happened to Avril. I'm obviously no psychologist, but Jackson displayed what must be classed as some truly psychopathic behaviour by doing that. The mad thing is that the EFIT Crime Watch released of him based on witness testimonies was a dead ringer. It looked exactly like him. One final piece of evidence was the fact that living in a flat in the tower block where Avril's clothes and handbag belongings were found was Jackson's brother. Now, whether his brother knew anything of the offence is unclear, but I haven't read any mention of him being involved as a co-conspirator, so let's not jump to any unnecessary conclusions. After the arrest of Jackson, a Bedfordshire police spokesperson said, Advances in technology and new information have allowed us to go forward with this case. Case prosecutor Mike Tyndall added to that by telling the court at a hearing, It is DNA evidence which has eventually brought the police to a position where they could charge the defendant with this matter. Despite the overwhelming evidence against him, Jackson pleaded his innocence. He said, It couldn't have been me. I can account for where I was. I was nowhere near where Avril was murdered. I was at home. My wife can back up my account. He reckoned that although he left the pub at around the same time as Avril, he headed straight home to his wife, who could confirm that alibi. Whether she did or not is another matter because he was pretty bang to rights as it was. The trial eventually took place in January 2000 at Reading Crown Court lasting three weeks. In an attempt to explain away the semen stains, Jackson insisted that he and Avril had had a sexual encounter a few days before she was killed but that he was not the one responsible for her murder. The prosecution put forward the case that Jackson had lured Avril to the shed in Sundon where he proceeded to attack and kill her. It was thought that, given the severity of Avril's injuries, Jackson likely assaulted her in a fit of rage, possibly at his sexual advances being rejected or following a sexual taunt. It must be noted that those are both unsubstantiated assumptions though. To date, no motive has been provided for the murder of Avril Dunn. The jury returned with a majority guilty verdict of 10 to 2, with Mr Justice Garland subsequently handing Jackson a life sentence. The judge said, I would like to pay a tribute to the remarkable forensic research that went into this case and the quite staggering DNA forecast. It is the greatest possible tribute to forensic science in this case. Despite no minimum tariff being given at the time of his sentencing, Jackson was later handed a 15-year minimum on December 19, 2001. Ten years later, a well-behaved Jackson made an appeal for his minimum sentence to be reset. His appeal ultimately failed. The 15-year minimum was deemed to be justified and remained firmly in place. If we do some simple maths, we come to the conclusion that Jackson was up for parole in 2015 at the earliest, but the trail regarding his case ends there. Given his previous good behaviour, it wouldn't surprise me if he is now a free man. As for Avril Dunn, 
Her life was cut short in the most brutal way at the hands of someone she likely thought of as a friend. May she rest in peace. And that was the story of the murder of Avril Dunn. Thanks again, Judy and Peter, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one. If you're listening on Spotify, there is a section at the bottom of the episode where you can let me know your thoughts. I'm getting some lovely comments on there. Sadly, I can't reply directly to them. I can assure you, though, that I do read them all, and I'm grateful to those of you who have reached out. I have a few new reviews to read out this week. Monster87 left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It reads, A nice podcast that is factual and not too long keeps your attention. I like the interviews and the coverage of mostly unknown cases I've not heard of or on the many podcasts available. Well done and keep up the good work. Charlie Carroll left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com which reads, I was in a car with my dad Nick looking for thunder and lightning, but as we passed the place of Albert Dryden's crime, he told me a summary and told me to listen to season nine, episode four on my phone, which I did. As soon as I heard you say that my dad had requested this story, I knew it was going to be good. And it was. Couldn't have made it better. Olivia left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, I found this podcast a month ago and I've already finished every season and I love it. I love the way you try to pronounce Australian and American words and your podcast makes me laugh. Thank you for keeping me happy and carry on the good work. And finally, Richard Jones left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, I came across this about six weeks ago after searching for a good listen. Loving it, and I'm already on season five. I listen on my way to and from work. Thank you, Munster87, Charlie, Olivia, and Richard, for leaving those lovely reviews. If you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at BritishMurders.com. Please keep leaving your star ratings for me on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis, you can find the links for Patreon and buy me a coffee on BritishMurders.com. Thank you, Gemma Green, for buying me three beers. The message left was, Hey Stu, I love your podcast and I'm seriously hooked. I'm a delivery driver and you help pass the time while working. I'm currently on Season 8, Episode 10. It's only taken me two months to binge this far. I wanted to mention the magic roundabout in Swindon, a fact about the episode. I've driven it and it is in fact a challenge. Keep up the good work. I love everything about this podcast, love the collabs with Bobby and I have started to follow and listen to her too. I've bought you three beers in the hope that you could convert one to a fruit shoot for your daughter's efforts too. Love that. I love hearing her little voice at the beginning and it always makes me laugh stroke smile. Love you both. You brighten my day. Cheerio old bean. Thank you also, Mrs. Gilpinator, for buying me three beers. The message left was, great show, have just started listening and I'm hooked. Been binge listening. Keep up the good work. Please continue emailing case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll get a cheeky shout out too. And that does it for another episode and another season. Next week, we are having... Sally Ann Martin come on she's been a previous guest she's written me a story you know I like to be lazy in my off season and get people to write me and tell me stories so she's coming on next week we're recording that in a couple of days time I believe when you're hearing it might be tomorrow by the time you hear this actually I forget I'm a busy man after that if I don't do a two part special I will jump straight into season 11 and that's it we'll carry on but yeah for now that's it 
I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.